Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Early March this year. At the police headquarters of a small town in Ontario, Canada, a press conference is underway. Police, good morning, and thank you for attending. Four detectives sitting in what looks like an art gallery. Today, you will hear results of a two and a half year long investigation that has led us to uncovering a significant and complex case of art fraud. Behind them, Ten large, colourful paintings. Indigenous figures, lizards, birds, fish. They're supposedly by the very famous Indigenous Canadian artist, Norval Morisot. What you see behind me today represents examples of the types of work made under and profited from Norval Morisot's name. But they're all believed to be fakes. The scale of the alleged deceit is unprecedented. Please think that more than a thousand paintings worth millions of Canadian dollars have been forged by three criminal groups. We have seized more than 1,000 paintings, prints and other art that were purported to be authentic. In addition, we arrested eight individuals and have laid, since laid, 38 charges. It was a scandal that shocked the art world. Morisot is colourful on canvas and in his own life, but with fame has come forgery and outrage. But how on earth did it happen? And who's suspected of making the fakes? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Luke Jones. Today, could this be the world's largest art fraud? There was a story in the art newspaper which referred to a extraordinary police raid which had taken place in a part of Ontario called Thunder Bay. Will Pavia is New York correspondent for The Times. And the police had given a press conference, the Ontario Provincial Police. And it was just a fascinating thing to look at because it was these police officers standing on a stage at the police headquarters, and behind them there were all these paintings. I mean, it almost looked like an art event, and these were paintings that they had seized in the raid. When we began this investigation, our goal was to identify those who defrauded the public and exploited the work of renowned Indigenous artist Norval Morisot. And they were talking about these fraudulent art rings, which involved thousands and thousands of fakes by the sound of it. Norval Morisot, for the uninitiated, who was he? So he was a Canadian Indigenous painter. He's often referred to, and this sounds rather strange, as the first Indigenous painter to be exhibited as a major Canadian gallery. But he really was the sort of first to become a sort of mainstream Canadian artist and to be widely recognised. 
So he grew up in Thunder Bay, which is in northwestern Ontario. He's Anishinaabe, and his indigenous name was Copper Thunderbird. And he was brought up by his maternal grandparents, as was the tradition in his people. His maternal grandmother was Christian. And so his paintings, which he starts doing from quite a young age, were sort of this fusion of, of indigenous and Christian traditions, or that's how they're seen. And he becomes recognised as, as this great Canadian painter. Marc Chagall calls him the Picasso of the North. And, you know, apparently Picasso saw his paintings too. I mean, they're just these very, very vibrant, dazzling pictures, mm. which have all these sort of features of indigenous art in them. And really vibrant. I mean, if you if you sort of think Matisse via Picasso, via Gilbert and George, they're quite bright, illustrative, yes, punchy. That's the very good description. I mean, people talk about how they sort of almost like radiate light and they almost like seem to vibrate when you look at them. And so they'd have like uh, indigenous figures in them or they'd have turtles or, or snakes. That certain painting, it will be a force that will protect whatever situation you're in. Many times people come up to me and say, Norval, I thank you very much for healing me. I thank you very much for helping me. I thank you very much for doing this. I have never seen those people. What did it? That certain painting. Some of them are quite, almost quite frightening. Some of them are incredibly beautiful. They became tremendously popular as, as he got older. And I suppose you would also say quite fashionable and, and their price sort of gradually shot up towards the end of his life. And even now, 15 years since his death, still valuable pieces, still influential pieces. And with Norval Morisot, suspicions of fraud isn't necessarily something new. No, that's right. There had been suspicions that there were fakes out there for quite a while. There were sort of stories about it from the early 2000s. For the last few years, an ugly controversy has threatened to mar the legacy of one of the most prolific Canadian artists of the 20th century. It was something that was a sort of theme with Morisot works, but it felt like people were being very careful because no one could quite prove anything. Norval Morisot's lawyer says there's growing concern that an increasing number of fake paintings are being sold in the artist's name. And so there was a lot of rumour, but it was never really sort of nailed down that that there were all these, these fakes out there. That is until one Canadian filmmaker decided to investigate. I'm Jamie Kastner, and I am the producer and director of There Are No Fakes. Jamie came across the story by accident. He tried to track down these rumoured fakes and find those who were allegedly making them, some of whom have been charged by the Canadian authorities... Jamie documented his journey in the film There Are No Fakes. Jamie, you spent years looking into this case and all of the alleged frauds around Morisot paintings. Rewind for us. When did you first come across Nouvelle Morisot and the question mark over whether there were some fakes of his in circulation? Well, Morisot is someone growing up in Canada that I have the sense of always having been aware of. He is has long been considered the sort of greatest indigenous artist. And at the same time, there was a sense of him being a kind of shaman, a kind of indigenous guru. I didn't hear about these fakes until I uh, called up my old uh, high school buddy, Kevin Hearn, who, in addition to playing in the band Bare Naked Ladies, he had been the musical director for uh, Lou Reed for the last seven years of his life. 
and I was thinking about doing a Lou Reed documentary. So I um, called Kevin. We met for lunch and Kevin said, I'm embroiled in this other thing. Uh, maybe this would be of interest to you. And he took out his phone and showed me a newspaper story about his lawsuit over having been sold what he believed was a fake Morisot painting. And uh, that's where it all started. And what did the picture look like that he was showing you? And what was he pointing out as being suspicious about it? Well, he had bought this painting called Spirit Energy of Mother Earth uh, a few years earlier from a gallery in the ritzy part of Toronto for $20,000. It was a sort of fairly large green canvas with kind of mythical uh, animalistic creatures. It was a sort of lime green background and it was it appeared to you know the uneducated eye i.e mine to be in Morisot's style uh, which is mm. known as woodland art and in addition to uh, Morisot's typical signature uh, which is a series of what are called Cree syllabics on the front of the painting it also had uh, Morisot's signature in English on the back in what is called black dry brush which is to say he used a paintbrush with black uh, paint on it after having painted on the front, mm. so it was kind of fading out. And that, I was to learn, became the identifier or one of the key identifiers of this questionable species of Morisot paintings, the black dry brush signature. But your friend Kevin won't have been an expert in this. So how did he actually come to realise his was, his was possibly a fake? Kevin had bought this picture, and a couple of years later, he hung it in the Art Gallery of Ontario, which is our sort of main public art museum in Toronto. And the Canadian art curator at the time, uh, Gerald McMaster, who is himself an Indigenous artist and an Indigenous art specialist, saw Kevin's painting and said, this has to come down. And uh, uh, that's, that's where the discussion began. As soon as Kevin began to question the authenticity of this painting with the gallery owner who had sold it to him, he found himself suddenly in the middle of these two feuding factions of people who were at each other's throats over the authenticity of this particular species of Morisot painting. And uh, it turns out that there had been scores of vexatious lawsuits launched there had been all sorts of nefarious online attacks, people characterizing each other as Nazis online, going on down to, you know, physical scuffles on the courtroom steps and rocks thrown through gallery windows. And it was all over this feud to establish, as the film's title, you know, borrowed the phrase, you know, that there are no fakes. And I think Kevin began to realize he was, had gotten ensnared in something much bigger. And then here he is over lunch, recounting all of this to you. And you must think, this is gold. I've got to look into this more. <laughs> Forget Lou Reed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> uh, you know, I uh, love Lou Reed. And Kevin and I played in a, in a Lou Reed cover band briefly in high school. But, you know, music biopics are one thing. This was the beginning of a much more fascinating tale. I mean, the question of the truth is sort of a, a fascinating and central question to this story, i.e. what you could call an objective truth versus a legal truth, 
versus a generally accepted truth. All of these kind of truths come into play in this tale. And Kevin and his lawyer and their band of covert sleuths were onto something very intriguing. What they had not done was manage to establish it as fact in any other sphere. And I think that's where I came in. Coming up, the plot thickens. That's just in a moment. So the situation as you arrive to it, Jamie, is that you've got your friend Kevin and people who work with him concerned about there being fakes or forgeries of uh, Novel Morisot paintings. And then on the other side, you've got these gallery owners and auctioneers who are pushing back quite forcefully against those claims. I started by retracing the path that Kevin had been down, which is to start meeting the people who had been arguing that these were fakes. One of these people in particular, and I knew this would be part of the gold of the story, was this guy who had painted some of these dubious paintings, or so I was told. He was He's an artist in Thunder Bay named Tim Tate. And it took quite a while of back and forth and calls and ignored calls and one thing and another till he, he finally agreed to uh, see me in Thunder Bay. Just describe that part of Canada for us. Well, I had never been to Thunder Bay before, but I had certainly heard of it. Uh, Thunder Bay is a kind of small city, 10 hours north of Toronto, and it's known as the murder capital of Canada, which is not, you know, numerically significant compared to, say, our neighbour to the south. Mm. Uh, but it is, you know, it's still, it's still our humble accomplishment. And when I finally went up there, I mean, there is a real palpable vibe to the place. There's a kind of menace to it. And it reminded me a bit of the U.S. Virgin Islands, you know, places that are just far from the centre, that are kind of off the grid and that administer their own kind of justice accordingly. You know, they're Wild West places. It was there that you meet Tim Tate, the painter. And the fascinating thing about him is, is that when you met him, it was sort of immediately apparent that, that his style of art that he was doing in his own name looked very similar to what Morisot did. Absolutely. He lived in this little apartment and the walls are covered by these, you know, small format paintings, but with a whole spectrum of these woodland style animals, birds, fish, bears, very much in, in the Morisot style. Now, it's worth noting that there are a number of woodland artists out there. So that in itself is not unusual to see. But, you know, in this context, it's um, kind of eerie or, or noteworthy. And what made it particularly unusual and noteworthy was what he explained he was asked to do by somebody. Yes. So Tim Tate's story is that he was painting on commission in the woodland style. And I heard in some detail about how he, as an addict at the time, was compelled to uh, paint for someone who was, for lack of a better word, a kind of mobster type figure who was paying him both in cash and substances and, um, and without signing his name to the paintings. I 
wonder why he's asking me to do all this, you know, like, he told me to paint this, paint that. So Tim Tate, not unreasonably, and particularly in the vulnerable situation he was in at the time, believed that this would benefit his own art career. This is one of the early ones I did. I thought I thought that was going to be like my work. This one I didn't sign. And I guess he never really thought to ask why he wasn't signing his own name. But in any case, he just did what he was being paid for. The person Tim Tate is talking about there is one of the people now charged in Canada. We're not naming them here for legal reasons. You know what? If I had a chance to beat the shit out of him, I beat the hell out of him, I would. You know what I mean? That's the kind of anger I have in me right now. Did anyone actually hear from him that, that this was his plan, that he would have people make these paintings and then flog them as if they were Morisot's? Or is this just all supposition? Well, I mean, this is, uh, there's another witness and he's a remarkable man named uh, Dallas Thompson. And he was involved not as a painter per se, but as a kind of just general assistant dog's body in and around the operation. How do you feel having been part of it? I wish I wasn't. I wish, you know, things turned out different for me. And he told in great and convincing, very convincing length, what they had done, what the distribution plans were, what the, what the kind of workflow was. And how did it all work? How did they lay it out? They would get the paintings from a variety of, of different painters and they would ship them out to different dealers and middlemen across the country, or so I was told. We drive to Calgary, one stage, straight shot, 23 hours, 24 hours. Sell the art and, you know, sleep and be gone the next morning, drive straight back. And they would go on runs, driving 24 hours at a time to meet them in different kinds of motels and, and sell them out of the back of a truck kind of thing. And on every trip, it was probably about 30 paintings. And average price was probably around three grand for paintings. So in terms of how the forgery ring worked then, Tim Tate wasn't the only painter then behind this? No, Tim Tate was not the only painter. My own, my own digging and relationship building and sleuthing eventually led me to one of the other alleged painters who was Morisot's nephew, Benjamin Morisot. And then I started seeing Benji signing Norvell's signatures to his artwork after that's when they started making the face. And following a lot of cat and mouse on multiple trips to Thunder Bay, he finally called me just as I was heading to the airport and, and offered to meet me at a bowling alley. So I met him. I didn't know if, if uh, he would agree to do something on camera or not. We chatted for a minute and he was having a beer and I probably joined him. And uh, as one does in, uh, in bowling alleys in Thunder Bay. And he, I guess he figured, he figured he could handle me. And he said, okay, bring in the crew. So we did. And we did an interview with him. Let me just ask you directly. I mean, did, did you ever paint? No, not ever. Not ever. You never painted. <laughs> I paint Woodman's painted art. <clears throat> okay. 
for me to to uh, 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 sign a shaman's name would be such a bad omen on my spirit that it would probably stop me. I haven't attempted this because I already know on hand I wouldn't be able to do this thing. So I'm here today to set this record straight with you, my good man, and the rest of the art community that I have never forged my uncle's work. He's very insistent on that he didn't sign the paintings. This gets to the heart of trying to understand which paintings are fakes or not, doesn't it? The signatures and what they're like, where they are, and who might have put them there, Morisot or otherwise. Yes, exactly. The experts on Morisot agree that he signed his name on the front of his paintings in a series of what are called Cree syllabics, a kind of language of symbols. And then there's this whole species of paintings, it was estimated to be around 3,000, that, that were signed in black dry brush on the back. And these have been the kind of, this is like the red flag that something is up. Now, there are a whole bunch of dealers and distributors and owners who um, will fight you to the death, arguing for the authenticity of these paintings, who are deeply invested in this species of paintings and their authenticity, arguing that Morisot did this to, to help make his work more accessible to, to the white buyer, you know, to, to say, oh, because you don't read creasyllabics on the front, here, I'll put it in English on the back for you. But the leading experts and... During his own lifetime, Morisot himself argued that he never did such a thing and that these are fakes. And getting stuck into this world, and in particular one which originates from a particularly, let's be frank, murderous part of Canada, were you scared at all getting involved in this world? I was definitely scared. I just fell into this story that I knew was amazing and I had a sense of what my job was. Um, but I was definitely nervous, particularly going to Thunder Bay. And yeah, I, I got in and out of that place as quickly as I could. And, you know, had the feeling of watching my back a good portion of the time while I was there. What was fascinating about it to me was that people are sort of shocked to hear that this is happening in supposedly nice, boring Canada today. You know, we, we learn about colonialism as though it was a thing going on long ago, but you see it in action in this film. That what, what is this if not, if not a story of colonialism going on right now? People ripping off Indigenous people violating them on on every level, on a kind of cultural level, on a systemic level, on a personal level. Fast forward to March 2023 and that Ontario Provincial Police press conference. They announced that they'd uncovered what they say is a fraud ring forging Norvell Morisot paintings on an industrial scale for decades. Will, our New York correspondent, saw firsthand how important Jamie's documentary was in uncovering these allegations. One of the police officers said an extraordinary thing during the press conference. He said that someone asked him when he first learned of this fraud, and he said, I first learned of it when I saw that film. <laughs> so, yeah. so the film has helped turn this from something that was almost like talked about and rumoured about, but no one could quite prove it. And there was a lot of he says, she says kind of type sort of, well, it might be a fake or it might not be. And even when Kevin Hearn 
went to court, the judge seemed uncertain about whether he could say whether the painting was a fake or not. After the film, a higher court, an appeals court, reversed the decision basically and awarded him damages um, and said, yes, he, he, he was sold a fake painting. And I guess that's important because that was a first. That was someone finally officially acknowledging the fact that there were fakes out there. We now have this investigation into the numerous alleged fraud rings around forging these paintings. And there are numerous groups that they're looking at. So the police have identified three schools or, or three groups who are sort of faking these paintings. As you're now learning, the scope of this case is extraordinary. It wasn't just local or even provincial or even national. It was international. And it's not entirely clear that the investigation's over. I mean, the, 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 there seems to be thousands and thousands of paintings that, that were fakes. In terms of this case, will we get to actually reach a final conclusion? How long do you think this case can go on for? When will we actually have some kind of definitive answer? I mean, I think it'll be a while as the sort of the Canadian judicial system grinds away. You know, this is still the early days and, and these people have still haven't been tried yet. So I think it'll be something that goes through the court system. And I would assume that it'll be a, 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 at least a year or so before we we'd see a conclusion. It sounds like there's a lot of fake paintings out there. How big an issue is this? I mean, this is partly one of those issues that sort of surfaces now because of where the art market is, where works of art are seen mm. as not just things to hang on your wall, but as investments. And there's a lot of money in them. And, you know, people in Thunder Bay realise this about Maurice O's work. But it's, you know, it's a broader problem within, within the art world. For someone like Norville Marisot, on the scale of which we think this has been done... It's really going to tarnish his legacy, isn't it? Yes. I mean, I think it's a great shame. Certainly, towards the end of his life, there were efforts to set up, you know, official authentication process by which it could be decided whether this was a proper Morisot or not. But in the case of Morisot, someone who, as you say, was, you know, this sort of very celebrated painter that perhaps very, very well known in Canada, but perhaps not so well known overseas. It, it is a shame that, that this is how a lot of people have first got to hear his name. And I suppose they must hope that with this police investigation and with these prosecutions, it draws a line and sort of shows that actually, you know, that there are real paintings that are very valuable and, and some of this gets cleared up. If I'm in here in this world to deliver any messages, I wouldn't want to be a preacher. I would want to be a painter to show people that there is there's something else. This is a better communication, which you could communicate with a whole set of multitudes of people. It goes, breaks all barriers. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. With me, Luke Jones, and my guests, documentary filmmaker Jamie Kastner and New York correspondent for The Times, Will Pavier. You can find all of Will's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producers today were Charlotte Alt and Taryn Siegel. The executive producer was Kate Ford and sound design was by John Scott. If you can, leave us a review. It helps others find us. And if you have a story which you think we should be covering, an idea for a future episode perhaps, or maybe you have thoughts on what you've just heard, 
send us an email, storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. Goodbye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.